Thank you. Welcome, and I'm Father Mitch Pacwa. Welcome you to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at sacred scripture through the lens of our Catholic tradition. And of course, we love to have you be part of the show. You can do that by adding your own questions or comments during the live broadcast, which is on Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, of course. And the phone number you can call if you are in North America is 1-800-221-9460. 1-800-221-9460. That won't work outside North America, but you can call another number if you are not in North America. It's country code 1, area code 205. 271-2980, And if you call from outside North America, we'll put you right at the top. And then you can also send us your questions or comments through email by writing to scriptureandtradition at ewtn.com or follow us and participate with the show on Facebook and YouTube. Now, today we'll begin a couple-week discussion on the martyrdom of John the Baptist. Also take a look at King Herod and his whole reaction to the mission of the Twelve Apostles, and we'll see how John's death was a foreshadowing of the Apostles' future. So let's take a look at this passage. We are going through the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, and today we'll be starting off with verse 14. If you are following along, we're going through my book called Praying the Gospels, Jesus' Miracles in Galilee. This is available at EWTNRC.com where it is item number 52885, 52885. So, let's take a look at this. First of all, I'd like to talk a little bit about Herod the Great, and, the, and as well as Herod Antipas. Herod the Great, of course, was born in 72 B.C., and... He died in 4 uh, B.C. And this is um, something, you know, he became very sick uh, right around the time of, you know, Christ's birth. Uh, he had a number of wives. I think he had seven wives. Now, there had been plural marriage 
in the Old Testament. Uh, you know, Abram had uh, uh, more than one wife, and you also see a number of other uh, people. King David had a number of wives. Solomon overdid it. I'm a big supporter of marriage, but a thousand wives is too much. And there's, <laughs> it's just not, this is not good sense. Um, but he, Herod had seven wives. And this is, and he lay, named a lot of his kids Herod. You know, he, he's sort of like one of the boxers who keeps naming all his sons George. Well, let's take a look at, just to get the rundown of who these people are. One of his sons is Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas was born uh, right around 20 B.C. And he died sometime after 39 A.D. So he, he was about 60 years old when he died. And his mother was Malthaki. And Malthaki, uh, usually spelled in English M-A-L-T-H-A-C-E. The C is a hard K sound because it represents the kappa in Greek. Uh, she, I believe, was a Samaritan. And he was the tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. Now, why is he called a tetrarch? Because three of the brothers took over. One of them was Philip. Another was Herod Archelaus. Um, and so if there are three brothers, why do they call it tetrarch? Because tetrarch means ruling one-fourth. Well, the reason was Herod Archelaus, who was born in 23 B.C. and died in 18 A.D., was tetrarch of two parts, Judea, Samaria, and Edomaea. He was also a full brother of Herod Antipas, but uh, his mother was also Malthaki. And one of the problems is that he was a thorough fool. And the Romans saw how badly he ruled, so they deposed him. And they put a Roman official in charge. The third brother, as I mentioned, was Philip. He was born in 26 B.C. He was the oldest of them, died in 34 A.D. or so. And uh, he ruled the Tetrarchy in the northeast of Galilee. Okay? His mother was named Cleopatra of Jerusalem, not Cleopatra from uh, Egypt. That's a, Cleopatra was a common name among Greek-speaking uh, people. So you've got these brothers. And, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, problems that went on between them. We know from history that they were supposed to share the rule with Archelaus having half the kingdom since he was the one designated in Herod's will. And the emperor Octavian, you know, Caesar Augustus, um, you know, had approved the will, but again, Archelaus was so, so bad. So this was uh, one of the problems. And 
As a result, Romans took over Judea. They ruled the south, while Herod Antipas ruled around the Sea of Galilee, and Philip ruled to the north. All right, so that gives you uh, some of the background. Now, given this political situation and getting who these people are, because a lot of times, they, just, for instance, St. Mark just calls him King Herod, and I'm just trying to help you know that the King Herod here is Herod Antipas, not Herod the Great, not Herod Archelaus, Herod Antipas' brother, um, but Herod Antipas. And um, we now take a look at the text. It says in, um, in our second meditation on this passage in Mark 6, 14 to 16, King Herod heard of it. That was the it. King Herod heard that Jesus had sent his disciples two by two to go to the various villages. He's well aware of it. In fact, he oftentimes would have people keeping their ears and eyes open to know what was going on. This was sort of like uh, the FBI today, you know, messing around with Facebook and, you know, Twitter and all this stuff, keeping an eye on what people are doing and saying and, you know, trying to... Well, people in power like to know who's saying what and if they can, control it. That's not new. So don't be overly surprised at all that. Um, and for him, Jesus' name had become known, but he wasn't sure. When he goes on to say, uh, St. Mark says, some were saying that John the baptizer has been raised from the dead. So Jesus says, John the Baptist raised up. But we know that's not true. For this reason, these powers are at work in him. But others said, it is Elijah. Others said, it's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. That was his theory. Now, notice this is uh, something that we'll see again in the gospel. In chapter 8 of the gospel of Mark, plus the parallels in Matthew 16 and Luke 9, that people have a certain amount of knowledge about Jesus. They know a few things. But that little bit of knowledge evokes speculation about who he might be, who, whom could he be. They don't know. And they don't have faith in Jesus but they try to speculate based on what they already think and what they already know, and they go from that to extrapolate these other theories, all of which were wrong. And we don't know who these people were, just some unnamed people. It was the kind of buzz that was going around Galilee at this time. And 
you know, again, they think Jesus is somebody raised from the dead. He's John the Baptist. He is Elijah, one of the prophets. We see that in uh, Mark chapter 8, when Jesus was in Caesarea Philippi. By the way, Caesarea Philippi was a town named after Caesar Augustus by Philip. The Philip, that's the brother of this Herod. And when he was up in Caesarea Philippi, he, said, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And so they answered, just like here, John the Baptist, others Elijah, to others one of the prophets. They speculate on what little they know, but that's all that their lack of knowledge gives them is speculation. Now, this is the same kind of thing we see today. When people have a little bit of knowledge and they try to give public opinion polls among those who are only semi-knowledgeable, people who don't really know what they're talking about will still give an opinion and that opinion is invariably wrong. That's not the way it works. This is very important because we will see in our own time, people have very little knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. I still see folks confusing uh, Easter and Christmas. They think that Christmas is when Jesus rose, or they might think that Easter is when Jesus was born. I mean, there's lots and lots of confusion because people don't read Scripture. They don't pay close attention when they hear it. And they pick up a few words here and there, but it all gets mishmashed together. This is a problem. This is a problem. And it's a problem that the church has. We have to be better educators. But also, people don't know in, in our culture anymore, they don't know who the first president of the United States was. They don't know the difference between the House of Representatives and the Senate. They don't know how many senators there are, yet alone representatives. And the, they often don't know who the present vice president is. And that's not just this administration, that's been going on. You know, half-baked knowledge about secular things and religious things is part of culture. And it doesn't make for uh, any uh, good progress. And notice here, Herod, is, Herod uh, Antipas, is very self-assured. Just because you're ignorant doesn't mean you don't have self-confidence. In fact, I oftentimes find that some people in their ignorance are very self-confident. That's one of the reasons they argue so loudly. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't bother to go and find out. And they yell more as a way to overcome the fact that they don't know the facts. This is part of our culture today, and it goes on a lot. And this is the, something that we 
learned from the ancient times. And uh, why? It's a human problem. Humans really do, in their heart of hearts, they really do want truth. Even in a culture like ours that is relativistic, people want what's true. But they can convince themselves that they have truth when in fact they have half-baked ideas at best. And so while the desire for truth is very good, really is, the lack of it, uh, lack of facts and knowledge is not. And this is something that goes on. Now, it's not just among people who are uneducated, by the way. Also, you have a lot of very, very highly educated people who take the little bit they know and speculate in ways that are often odd. For instance, there are a number of professors and scholars of the New Testament who don't like the teaching of the gospel. So they try to change it. It's what uh, in the Maronite Rite today we had as our first reading, first, excuse me, Second Corinthians chapter eleven, verses one and following. In I believe it's verse three and four, that Saint Paul warns that people will come preaching another Jesus, another spirit and another gospel. And that is not something from ancient times. So you have people like Leif Vag, who called Jesus a party animal, who ran around Galilee partying on down. He might have thought he was at a college campus, but he wasn't really. Uh, you have John Dominic Crossan, who was, um, uh, had been uh, a Catholic priest, um, very well-known scholar, uh, but he said that Jesus was, quote, a Galilean hippie in a world of Augustan yuppies. Augustan referring to the Emperor Augustus. Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenzo, another very famous scholar, she did a, a commentary on the book of Revelation, a number of other things, she called Jesus a feminist prophet of the goddess Sophia, despite the fact that Jesus Christ our Lord never mentioned any goddess, yet alone Sophia. She was making that up. Robert Funk, who started the Jesus Seminar, assumed that belief in a personal God who interferes in the world with miracles is a dead God. That, that, that doesn't exist. So, Prayer and atonement is meaningless, sub-rational and sub-ethical. He was told he did not want God to be active in our lives. And this is what, you know, he taught. And he came up with this same kind of thing. He got together a group of scholars, a large number, who would vote on verses of the Bible to see whether Jesus really did speak it Maybe he did, certainly did not. And they had different color marbles to vote. And you see that it's, even though they're well-educated, 
The fact is, they did not <clears throat> want Jesus Christ to be who he says he is. They don't want that. They want another Jesus. And they write about it. And here's the question I would leave for you to reflect in this meditation. It would be good for you to speak to Jesus about what you believe he is. What is your understanding of Jesus? And then imagine speaking to him in this context. Imagine you were there. What would he say to you about his identity? What would he say to you about who he is? And what I recommend is that you conclude praying with, by saying the Apostles' Creed. Make that statement of faith. Because it's not going to be our clever speculation that saves us, but rather our act of faith in Jesus our Lord. We're going to take a break and come back and discuss uh, a third meditation about Her uh, John the Baptist martyrdom. So please stay with us. So we are continuing on in Mark chapter 6. This is our third meditation on the mission of the apostles, the first mission by Jesus. And then in between their being commissioned to go out, we see this, <coughs> these episodes about the Bap John the Baptist's martyrdom. And remember how I said it's St. Mark's technique to sandwich one story in between another one. And that's because they're meant to influence and interpret each other. So we'll get to that next week to get the point. But just want to remind you that that's what we're going through here. So now to this third meditation will be on Mark chapter 6, verses 17 to 18. It starts off, For Herod himself, had sent men who arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now, there are a number of things here that we ought to, pay attention to. First, very often the Greek writers, people like Plutarch, if you ever get a chance, I would recommend that you read Plutarch's Lives. 
He has the lives of various Roman heroes, <coughs> and he parallels them with the lives of Greek heroes, trying to show that they're, they're, both cultures have these kind of heroes. And you see that uh, oftentimes these heroes in Plutarch and other writers, uh, certainly in the uh, Iliad and the Odyssey, that they have lots of brave adventures. The stories of Hercules, who's certainly a flawed hero, to be sure, <clears throat> but they have these adventures. Sometimes, not in the case of Hercules, but in other people, they defend noble principles and they sometimes die very nobly. But these heroes are always at the center of attention. That's what goes on in those books. And, and again, Plutarch has withstood the ages. He's well worth reading, as is the Iliad and the Odyssey. Very well worth reading those books. But you see something very different here with John. The story of his, of his uh, arrest and imprisonment is very simple. It's not all this flourish like you would have with the Greek secular heroes. Instead, as is true in the story throughout the stories of Jewish martyrs, that the emphasis is on the way that the hero, in this case John the Baptist, remained faithful to God. He stays faithful to God's law, and he's faithful to faith in God. And he prefers to die rather than to break the law, to transgress it, or to deny it, or to deny its relevance. And you see this in lots of different places. For instance, in the martyrdom of Azariah, in the second book of Chronicles, chapter 24, verses 20 to 22, also, in the book of Maccabees, especially 2 Maccabees, you see the martyrdom <clears throat> of an elderly man, Eleazar, who prefers to be skinned alive and burnt to death rather than eat pork and break the law. The same thing is true with uh, the mother of seven sons, all her seven sons, were flayed alive. They were skinned alive. I mean, you know, you wouldn't, I cannot imagine ever doing such a thing to an animal you're going to eat. If you, uh, if they butcher a cow or something or some other animal, you would never skin it alive. That would, you'd be arrested rightfully. But the Greeks did that to these seven brothers and to their mother. Uh, matter of fact, her feast is celebrated in August in the Maronite Rite uh, on, I think, August 3rd, uh, St. Shimon. Um, and then also in Jewish literature, outside the Bible, people like Rabbi Akiba has, is faithful to the law and prefers death rather than become unfaithful to the law. So the Romans kill him. And you see that in the Talmud, uh, in the tractate on Berakot, uh, 61. 
Later on, we'll see if you have read the stories of Christian martyrs. It's very similar. Christian martyrs are also faithful to God, the one God. They're faithful to Jesus Christ. They won't deny Him. They won't deny His way of holiness and the virtues and the commandments of God. They, they stay faithful. So this is a model for Jewish and Christian martyrs alike. Now, St. Mark adds some editorial comments um, and explains that John was arrested because he criticized Herod Antipas and Herodias for incestuous adultery. This is a very serious, and it's a double kind of incest. First, he was married, uh, or Herodias was married to Philip, and you can't take your brother's wife. This is something forbidden in Leviticus 20, verse 10. To do that, to take your brother's wife, put you up for the death penalty. This wasn't just some, well, that's, that's just not very polite. No, it was a death penalty crime. And Herod, of course, got away with it because he was a king. But this uh, was not something that the Bible allowed. In, uh, also in Leviticus 18, verse 16, it says, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. Um, this is something that's very, very serious. Uh, Leviticus 20, uh, verse 10 also says, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death, the man and the woman alike. Same in Deuteronomy 22, verse 22, if a man is caught lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman as well as the woman. So shall you purge the evil from Israel. Now, Today, you get put into People magazine or some other such magazine, and you are not executed for this, but it was a very serious crime. And Herodias doesn't have any sense of, oh, boy, I'm so sorry that my sin was made public. No, what's her attitude in verses 19 and 20? Herodias had a grudge against John the Baptist and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed that he liked to listen to him. So here you have Herodias wanting to kill John the Baptist out of revenge for criticizing the fact that she left Philip for Herod Antipas. By the way, I should also mention this. Herodias was also the niece of both brothers. Herodias was the daughter of a half-brother. So Aristobulus, who was the son of Herod the Great, and another wife called Bernice. You, that's how we say it in uh, English, Bernice. Bernike is the way you'd say it in, in Greek. So Bernice 
was the and the the mother and Aristobulus, their half brother, was the and furthermore, uh, this meant that she was a first cousin and the daughter of his father's sister. I mean, it, it, it's really, really um, uh, an incestuous, doubly incestuous relationship. And this is one problem. But she, so she's very upset. But then you also see how Herod is afraid of John. He knows John is right. Herodias just wants to get back at him for this. And that's the attitude of someone whose heart is hardened in their guilt. But Herod feels some remorse, but not enough, because Herodias wanted to marry him because she knew there was more of a future. Philip didn't have as much ambition as Herod Antipas. Uh, she wanted to keep pushing forward. In fact, uh, a few years later, in uh, six, six or seven years after the death of our Lord, uh, Herodias and Herod Antipas were both dethroned and exiled by the emperor Tiberius. Excuse me, Caligula. Caligula. They were so bad, even Caligula was upset. And he wasn't a nice guy to begin with. And he sent them to live in Gaul, which is now France. Um, most of us would say, oh, living in France sounds pretty good. But you have to keep in mind, they didn't know how to make French food yet. Because it took the queen of France bringing a bunch of Italian cooks to teach the French how to do it right. So they hadn't happened yet. That was a good 1,500 years later. So they cook pretty blandly. So it's not the luxury place that you might think. And they get in trouble because of their ambition. But this is something that their guilt does for them. And John's words of rebuke were so filled with truth that Herod liked listening to the truth but he didn't want to change his life to conform to the truth. And that is what kept him from killing John the Baptist, despite Herodias. The problem is her hatred and her anger and her guilt are going to overcome Herod Antipas' guilt. And we'll see about that next week. All right. So let's take, we'll stop there. We'll come back to the story of John the Baptist in our next episode. Uh, for now, let's take a look at some of your emails. One of them is from Carla. She says, hello, Father Mitch, regarding the scripture from this Sunday on the epiphany of the Lord. They were overjoyed at seeing the star, and on entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. Where was this taking place and when? Was this after they went back to their home or sometime later when Jesus was older, like a year or so? 
Was it in a cave or a house in the Holy Land that we can visit? Was it just days after the baby Jesus was born? Or was this when he was more like a year old, Carla? All right, Carla, a couple things. This would have been sometime, uh, again, I've mentioned this before. St. Luke has a different set of interests. He wants to make sure that his audience knows Jesus obeyed the law. So he focused on Jesus' circumcision following the law and presentation in the temple following the law. While St. Matthew skips all that, he just takes it for granted because he's Jewish. St. Luke was Gentile. So St. Matthew takes that for granted and focuses entirely on this event with the Magi and the flight into Egypt. Now, with that, uh, this would have taken place sometime later and not in the cave where Jesus was born. In fact, if you, to answer one of your questions, if you go to the Holy Land, there is the cave of the Nativity. But that's not where they stayed. They were there for the birth because there's no room in the inn. But as the inn emptied out, they went and found a, a nicer place to stay. And this is traditionally another cave, and it is called the Milk Grotto Cave. It is just down the street from the Church of the Nativity, and it's a church. In fact, one of my favorite stories, uh, my dad had served in North Africa through World War II. Uh, he was in the Army Air Corps. And after Victory in Europe Day, he had a couple months of leave coming to him. So he went around, he saw different things in Egypt, the pyramids, things like that. He had to ride a horse to go see the pyramids in those days. Uh, now it's part of the city of Cairo. But he also went over to the Holy Land and he visited uh, the, you know, Bethlehem and Jerusalem and all this. And he was scandalized at the church of the Milk Grotto because, and you can still see them there, there are statues of Our Lady and uh, icons of Our Lady nursing the baby Jesus. And I remember saying, wow, they showed Jesus being nursed by, by Mary. I was shocked by this. He, he would tell me this. And I thought to myself, even as I was about 11, 12 years old, I said, well, what did you think? They're going to deliver the milk? This, <laughs> they didn't have milk trucks. You know, this is, uh, it just seems so normal to me. Um, I, I don't know why it seems so odd to him. But at, at any rate, that church is still there. It's a wonderful church. In fact, a lot of, there's, it's more of a chalk inside the cave. And people say that, you know, some of Our Lady's milk had fallen onto the cave floor. And so people still go there and get some of that chalk and they'll, uh, women who are having trouble conceiving a child will oftentimes drink that. And they have a great exhibit showing all the different babies that were later on born after women had trouble conceiving. 
So that's, that's there. So this would have been, Jesus would be about, like you said, about a year or so, maybe more, because Herod goes for two years and younger. So it would have been some time, and this would have been uh, an event where they take the child Jesus, when he's about a year old, over to Egypt, okay? And you go to Egypt, and you see lots of places, lots of churches, where they say that the Holy Family had gone to visit, whereas Joseph was looking for work. All right, we'll take a break. We'll come back with more of your questions and comments, so please stay with us. I just want to remind you that tomorrow on EWTN Live at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, we will be privileged to be speaking with Dr. Scott Hahn about holiness. And we'll talk about holiness as it's explained and revealed to us in sacred scripture, how God transmits his holiness to people and transforms us through the sharing of his divine life. There's a brand new book by him, and we're looking very much forward to it. All right, let us now go to a call. We have Jim calling from Florida. What part of Florida are you in, Jim? Jim, are you there? No? Well, we'll, we'll find out something else. So, uh, well, I don't know where he went, but we'll find out. Maybe they got us bad weather. <laughs> Let's go to an, uh, another email. Uh, Dear Father Mitch, discussing this with my friend and daughter, I was not able to explain the difference between soul and spirit. Mary's Magnificat expresses, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Is there a difference between soul and spirit? Please explain, as we all want to know. Becky in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Well, Becky, there is a difference. And here's, in English, we oftentimes don't make a distinction. Uh, we, we use soul and spirit interchangeably. But... It's two different words. Soul in Greek is psyche. We get the word psychology and psychologist and psychic from that word. And then spirit is pneuma. Now, in the Old Testament, they would distinguish between the nephesh, the soul, and the Ruach. In the Old Testament, the, the soul is what they meant held together the body and the spirit. So 
your soul was sort of like um, a glue, sort of like the membrane that holds your skin onto your uh, body or hold the membrane that holds your inner organs to the inside of your body, okay? Uh, it's, it's this connector between your body and your human spirit. Your spirit is what, you know, would be alive after you died. But your soul, in their understanding, didn't. Later on, in, you know, because by the New Testament times, it was influenced by Greek ideas. And they thought of the psyche along the lines of what we would expect from a psychologist. Those faculties of emotion and thinking and making decisions that are part of the human psyche. And again, that's what the word is there for soul. Whereas the spirit, again, is what lasts beyond this life and goes to God. Um, and there's another sense, too, that, uh, and St. Thomas Aquinas, I think, is very good on this. He would recognize, too, that the psyche refers to our emotions, intellect, memory, things like that. But the spirit is where God comes and meets the person. That's that most sacred part of the human being, where God meets us and that his Holy Spirit enters into our human spirit and communicates with us at that deepest level. And I think that is a, a final stage of reflection that is really very helpful, very helpful. That, you know, a psychologist helps you with your psyche, and they do a lot of good things. You know, they can have a lot of good influence, but your spirit is where you meet God, and God meets you. And that's what lasts longer than the psyche. Even psychological problems and tensions, they're going to go away. They, you're not going to bring those to heaven. You know, they, they, they don't stay there. Their, their emotions are so inherently connected with the body and such. You know, when you're emotional, you cry and you laugh and you sweat and all sorts of things. Uh, your stomach turns, uh, you, you get stress in your heart, all that stuff. But your spirit is where God meets you, and that lasts forever. So that's the, one of the distinctions that they make there. Hopefully that'll be helpful to you. Now we have Jim from Florida ready. Jim, what can we Hello. do for you today? Uh, thanks, Father, for taking my call. Sure. Uh, two, two quick things. Uh, discussing with my wife, who's non-Catholic, and I am, uh, we were watching TV, and the Idaho murders came up, and she asked me about capital punishment. Yeah. And I told her that I was pro-life, and I believed in uh, natural death. Mm -hmm. That led to another discussion on suicide. She had watched a movie where people were about to die no matter what, and they killed themselves. And that brought me to the people who jumped on 9-11. Mm -hmm. And uh, she asked if they got were denied seeing God. And I said that we can't judge 
what right. God thinks, but uh, I prefer a more professional opinion. Yeah, here, a couple things. You know, it's one of the truly horrific images of 9-11 to see people leaping out of a building. Now, on one hand, were they just trying to end it all? Or were they trying to escape the death from fire? I mean, they had no chance in there. They might have been hoping there was some way to land. I mean, who knows what was on their mind? That's why your answer is very important. We can't judge them because we don't know what was in their hearts. We don't know what was on their mind. And, you know, taking a chance rather than for sure be being burned alive, maybe what was going on, you know, that would be one possibility. And other, you know, uh, situations, you know, we have to remember, remember uh, this is very important because suicide has increased a lot in our culture, a lot. And we have to remind ourselves, we did not cause ourselves to be conceived. That means our lives are not really ours. Between our parents providing the material for our conception, we still have to look to the fact that at that point of con conception, God creates the soul. The parents don't. They don't. God creates the soul. And our lives belong to Him. So we, it's a sin against the fifth commandment to commit suicide, kill yourself. And this is something very serious because, you know, the, right now, the, the, um, you know, in Canada, that's one of the highest reasons for dying is people committing suicide. And in some of our states where it's been legalized, it's become very common for, uh, and it's not just, well, I'm going to die, cancer. It's for emotional problems. We didn't give ourselves life. We can't take our lives. And that's more the, the reality. Um, in terms of the death penalty, there are two concerns. One, you want to make sure that, you know, somebody who is innocent does not get executed. That's happened all too often. One very elderly woman repented in her last year or so of life, last couple of years, that she had lied about an African-American man raping her, and he was executed. And she admitted in her old age that she lied. It was something she had, she needed to have admitted when she was a little girl, saying this never happened. But she didn't. And that man died, and he stayed dead. And other people who are executed without good evidence are still dead, and they die, you know, for no reason. So we have to, that's one of the reasons. And secondly, I know, uh, I, I witnessed a murder, 
and I had a very, very close relative that was murdered. You know, so I don't say this as something lightly, um, but I still would want them to repent. I don't want the, the murderers to go to hell. I really don't. That's not our Lord's wish either. He doesn't want anyone to go to hell. He wants all people to be saved. And we need to have our own hearts with his heart. And I know, you know, from having, from my experiences of you know, murder, that if you did kill them, it doesn't bring your dead relatives back. And you don't really get revenge. My concern would be this, making sure that if somebody is convicted of a serious crime like murder, they do not get back out where they can do it again. That is a serious responsibility of the state, and the state has gone to the other extreme letting a lot of murderers and other criminals out to do it again to other innocent victims. And they have to be careful, even when they incarcerate them, not to make them a danger to the other inmates. Inmates don't have a right to be killed by these guys, so you may have to keep them in isolation or solitary. But you want to protect innocent people from being harmed by such criminals but you also want them to have a chance they didn't give their victims to repent and to turn to God. That, I still want that for them. I want it for the people that were involved in the murders uh, that I know of. So that would be my sense. All right, Lord bless you all and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and bring you to his peace. Almighty God bless you, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. And again, we remind you that we can bring you this program and all of our other programs only because the network is brought to you by you. So please remember to keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill, and we'll be able to pay all of our bills too. God bless you, and thank you. Thank you.